she was a serious composer. Her output, it spans orchestral, choral, vocal, chamber, you know, it's right across every genre. And ballets, nobody had written, no Irish composer, I think, had written ballets. Three symphonies, violin concerto, lots of orchestral music, and she loved the voice as well. She nearly always used voice with orchestra for settings of all kinds of texts. She also composed from early childhood, you know, it started at a very young age, to old age. And I think that that's, she never stopped, in other words, composing. Well, she was born in 1889 and she started composing for her family, you know, playing chamber music in the family. She never went to school. She was privately educated by governesses and they taught her instruments as well. And then she was writing music for them. But her first real compositions would have been in her early 20s, I think. And she was taking lessons in Dublin from several teachers who were living in Dublin at the time. One was C.H. Kitson, that we remember from her university days. And another earlier was Samuel Moriskov, who, who founded the Leinster School of Music. Also Percy Buck. And she took lessons from them and she was composing for them. And also for her cousin-in-law, uh, Charles Wood from Armagh, was married to Enos' cousin, Charlotte. And he took a great interest in her composition. There are lots of examples of her early exercises corrected in red ink in the Manuscripts Library in Trinity College. Her first real success was she entered for Feschsligig, Sligo Feschkeol, the composition competition, and she entered two works. And one was given first prize and the other was given second prize. But the first prize was a lovely piece called Elegy for Cello and Orchestra. And that was in 1913. So she would have been... 24 then and funnily enough I found the score of that work Elegy in the uh, uh, Manuscripts Library and it was for piano and it was obviously an early version but it was called Romance and later she changed the name almost immediately when she orchestrated it to Elegy and we never knew why. That actual piece is the first is on a, a CD now being played by a very good cellist called Nadege Rocha. She's uh, from Switzerland and she discovered Ina Boyle completely independently by looking up the website. She was looking for a cello work, a short cello work for her CD of two concertos and she wanted something in between and she recorded that work that came out two years ago. So. It wasn't wasted, even though it was first uh, composed in 1913. It was recorded a hundred years later. little known about her up until relatively recently? 
Well, I think one of the main reasons is that the music wasn't published. It's all in manuscript and it wasn't accessible. And also later on, the Second World War interrupted her career. She had been going backwards and forwards to England, to London, and having performances there. But of course, when the war came, it all stopped. And when the war was over, she was older and the demand for her music seemed to have diminished. Uh, except later on, she had some music uh, performed by the McNaughton Quartet at the McNaughton Concerts. That was the only outlet that she had in England after the war. But I think the war changed a lot for her. But she had some performances in Ireland during the war. For instance, I give details in the book <laughs> of these Fritz Brase took an interest in her, but that was earlier, that was in 1929, and Alois Fleischmann. And in the 40s and 50s, she had quite a few broadcasts on Radio Air, and Arthur Duff conducted a few of her orchestral works. And Brian Boydell, who was a friend, also conducted some of her music, but that all stopped after 1950. There was nothing none of her performances until the 90s in, strangely enough, in Belfast. The Ulster Orchestra gave two performances of her prize-winning work, The Magic Harp. And then after that, in 2010, Catherine Leonard played her violin concerto, but though also in Belfast with the Ulster Orchestra. But it wasn't until composing the island in 2016, the RTE Festival, that her symphony, after all those years, was heard here in Dublin. I, I think that it was something to do with the fact that she used a lot of rather heavy um, subjects. You know, the second symphony and the third symphony, they're not really uh, very accessible for audiences the first symphony could appeal to a lot of people because it was about Wicklow. It, it was obviously based on nature and her surroundings where she lived. But the second, even the title, The Dream of the Rude. <laughs> and the third, Out of the Darkness, which was based on Dame Edith Sitwell's poems of that title and which wasn't allowed by Edith Sitwell to use the poetry and it, it just it was never performed and that was the end of that but just looking at the symphonies that could be a reason and the same with a lot of the orchestral and vocal and choral works that she produced were rather out of date and maybe people didn't realise how beautiful the music was never gave up and I think composing kept her going because it was an escape in a way from her family responsibilities she did a lot of those and for instance a month before her death from cancer in 1967 
she wrote a letter from the nursing home to Elizabeth McConkie about a ballad that she had just found and that she was so excited about setting it for mezzo, baritone, small choir and orchestra. So she was still thinking about composing even though she was seriously ill. She was a lifelong member of the Music Association of Ireland from the very beginning, but she never went to meetings and she said that she lived too far from Dublin. (laughs) Now, Brian Bodell was a friend and there's a great photograph of her with E.J. Moran, Freddie May, Elizabeth McConkie, taken by Alois Fleischmann's mother in West Cork because they had all been involved in a concert in Cork in 1938. But it just shows you they were friends of hers. She knew those. And in 1947 and 1948, she attended the Department of Education summer school for composition lessons with Jean Martineau. And there were seven or eight other composers, all men, I have to add. But they included Brian Boydell again, Walter Beckett, Edgar Deal, Joseph Gruco. So she knew all her colleagues. There's a good story when the McNaughton Quartet came to Enniscurry in 1954 to give a concert for the Music Association of Ireland in her house. Shorsha was there, Shorsha Bodley, and he tells the story that he was asked which would he prefer, Indian or China tea? So it was very (laughs) civilised. I didn't play any of her music, funnily enough, even though she had a string quartet. So... That, that shows you something, doesn't it? She wasn't pushing her own compositions with her visitors. <laughs> Maybe she thought it wasn't a thing. <laughs> In London, you asked me as well, she made great friends with other composers who were also uh, students of Vaughan Williams. Grace Williams would have been one of them. And, of course, Elizabeth McConkie. But her family and Elizabeth McConkie's family were already great friends because, of course, Elizabeth McConkie was born in Dublin. But she had her music performed at the McNaughton concerts. Anne McNaughton was a great uh, advocate for new music and Ina availed, you know, benefited from that. And Nicola Le Fanu and her sister had great memories of visiting Ina Boyle too in Enniscurry and talk about the house and they were children, you know. So she had friends and they were musicians, but it didn't help because her music probably wasn't available in pub- in published form and it wasn't accessible then to performers. And to what extent did her gender play a factor in her lack of performances and relative obscurity? Well, that was society at the time. Women were not on equal terms <laughs> with men, not only in Ireland. Now, in Richard Behind's book, Music and Broadcasting in Ireland, it's very interesting because he lists the first performances by Irish composers from 1935 to 1951. And there were only two women composers listed, Joan Trimble and Ina Boyle. And another thing, in 1954, when the Music Association of Ireland ran a series of concerts by Irish composers in Trinity College, Dublin, again, the performances were all by men. Ina didn't feature. So 
there was that prejudice, really. It was just not... Uh, women weren't thought about uh, in that context. Well, it has changed. I, I don't have to tell you that either. And the CMC, the Register of Composers now, is a, a, a wonderful illustration of that, all the young composers who are women. Nowadays, women who are composers are getting the profile that they deserve. And in the case of Ina Boyle, I think she may be benefiting from that because, uh, again, you know, being a woman, I certainly noticed it uh, a factor in BBC Radio 3 on International Women's Day. You know, they had a whole day and it included Ina Boyle in the morning at breakfast and in the evening at the interval of the concert conducted by Jane Glover, which was all music by women. So even if it's coming late, it's not too late. It's never too late. I think Ina Boyle really is a bit of an enigma. Uh, her personality, you know, a lot of people consider who lived, knew her well when she was living in Enniscurry that she was quite eccentric, you know, driving a battered old car and wearing her gardening hat everywhere. And she also uh, was uh, a bit of a recluse. And she had, uh, if you read some of the um, references to her in uh, Sheila, w- w- Sheila Beddington's book, about her life, you know, she was a poet who was married to power. She was power, married. She lived in Powersport, yeah. and she was a great friend of Ina Boyle. But she described how Ina Boyle could see ghosts. <laughs> so uh, maybe Ina Boyle, even though she was a recluse and she was retiring, she wasn't retiring when it came to her music because she was fearless. She sent letters and messages to composers or to conductors and to choir masters trying to have her music performed and she travelled by sea over for her lessons to uh, Vaughan Williams. I mean that took a lot of courage you know to do that for somebody who was supposed to be very shy and retiring. So there were two sides to her but it was her music was the main driving force of her life and I think that if she were alive today I'm sure she'd take every opportunity to have her music performed and enjoyed but when she was alive that didn't happen but it will happen now I hope with the book. I think she would have loved to have the profile of a composer as a career. It was her big ambition and Vaughan Williams used to uh, encourage her and he said how courageous she was to be going on with so little recognition. But she certainly would have appreciated recognition now for her and her music, which she would, I think, have received in today's situation. (laughs) 